This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. Welcome to Dose and Delivery the Podcast. In this episode, Dr. Paul Singh welcomes Drs. Devinder Grover and Nate Radcliffe to discuss target IOP ranges the utilization of hysteresis to assess glaucoma and predict pressure fluctuations, as well as some of the technologies available for measuring IOP. More on this from Dr. Singh on... And delivery. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. I am Paul Singh out here in southeastern Wisconsin, proud cheesehead and glaucoma dude. Uh, and I'm here and honored to be hanging out with two fantastic colleagues, friends, surgeons, you name it. Uh, we have Devinder Grover out in Texas. What's up, Devinder? Hey, Paul. How you doing? Good, man. Good. And we also have our good friend, one of the funniest guys I know, Nate Radcliffe out of New York. What's up, Nate? Great to be here tonight, Paul. Thank you guys for hanging out. Yeah, it's a nice, nice uh, late night for you guys on the East Coast. So thanks for joining us here. But thank you, everybody, for another episode of Dose and Delivery Podcast Edition. Uh, we're going to have some fun tonight. These are two really fun fun colleagues of mine who are going to probably make it more fun than I could ever imagine. And we're, we're going to start us off talking about the uh, quintessential question we all have to ask ourselves when we see a new patient coming to our office. Where do the target pressures have to be? And I'm going to make this really basic and simple as a question to you guys. We're going to take it anywhere you want to go. But, uh, you know, when you're sitting in your room, just give me a, a quick spiel, if you can. Let's say we'll start with you, Devinder. When you have a patient in your room, how are you assessing target pressures? Give us, just for everybody's sake, some of the key salient uh, features of that patient that makes you appreciate what the target pressure should be. Yeah, Paul, you know, it's interesting. The target pressure is such a, a fascinating topic. And, uh, you know, it depends often if we know like the patient's highest pressure, their T-max. Uh, typically by the time uh, they come to my practice, I don't know their T-max. So I usually basically uh, will think about their stage of disease. And if they're, if they're in the advanced uh, category, I'll just put them immediately. My target is less than 15. Um, if they're kind of mild or moderate, I'll put, I'll usually aim somewhere in the, the mid to upper teens, depending on the stage of things. But if I do know their, you know, their Tmax, I will typically just try to target a 20 to 30% reduction. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in flux, but I, I find myself targeting more, you know, on the go, just a new patient, uh, kind of mid to upper Thank teens. Thank you for tuning in to advanced, another episode uh, of Dose and Delivery the Podcast. Um, unless I if have, you have some feedback evidence or of, topic of progression, then I can share, use that to refine find my, us on my, Glaucoma my Today's Instagram, LinkedIn, I'm gonna get Facebook, back to that or good, Twitter. Good here. Stay tuned you, for more hot topics and glaucoma care on Dose and Delivery the Podcast. I actually... Sounds like I do the same thing as Devinder, which is, you yes. know, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's automatically right. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's like a three hour answer to that question, but the 10 second answer is, you know, mild glaucoma, high teens, moderate glaucoma, mid teens, severe glaucoma, low teens. And um, I tend to kind of immediately start there. And then you start asking all the nuanced questions. How easy is it gonna to get to the low teens? You know, what's their hysteresis? What's the patient's history? What was their Tmax? What did they progress at? You know, you can, you, so you start with this really simple framework and then you just decorate it with all of these different nuances. And sometimes over many visits or even many years or perhaps even decades. So real quick, I mean, I, I, I'm going to, before we get into the details of like what technologies, what are some of the different risk factors that you take into consideration, um, do you guys give your patients target pressures? Do you actually tell them what 
the range should be that or you want to achieve? I usually do when I'm recommending therapy. You know, mainly it's because I'm saying, um, you know, your target is somewhere around here and this is where you are today. Uh, that where that gets to be a problem, which is, I wonder if this is where you're going, is half, half my patients today probably had borderline pressures. And, you know, I could neither say they were outrageously out of control, nor could I say I was happy. And I wasn't necessarily recommending any brave, you know, intervention. And I usually don't tell those patients, you know, that I'm sort of mediocrely satisfied with, you know, where they are at that visit. I try, I try to give them hope, but I think that is the downside of giving, you know, target pressure. How about you, Devinder? Do you give your patients an idea of where you want them to be? I do. You know, I think pressure is just one thing that they they really wrap their head around and they get focused on that number. Uh, I don't like to be as absolute. So, I, you know, like what Nate was saying, it's it's more, uh, I think, tolerable and, and acceptable to give a range. Say, hey, I want you to be in the upper teens, mid teens, low teens. So, you know, what's a, what's the mid teens? Is it is it 15? Is it 18? You know, typically we want them 15, 16. But if they're 17, 18, I'm like, oh, you're, you're slightly higher than the range that I want you to stay in. Let's see what we can do. Or if they're in the upper teens, and I see a little bit of, of uh, potential progression, then I move them to the mid-teens. And I tell them, hey, you're kind of floating in the higher area than I'm comfortable with. Let's, let's intervene and try something to get you into a slightly lower, lower range. So I try not to let them focus on one exact number because uh, some do. And you know, the, we all have those patients where they come in with a notepad and you're like, what's my pressure today? And they write it down and they get so focused on it. And I try to give them, a, um, you know, I say, I tell them this oftentimes uh, when, I, when I have the perspective of a couple of years, I say, you know what, I don't really care what your pressures are today. What's more impactful to me is that I can look back over three years and see that we have stability. So wherever we've been going over the past three years, we're good. We could have been going up, you know, from, from 15 to 18. But so don't get focused on the fact that your pressure is 18 today, because I can take a step back and say over three years, we've been stable. And that's the most thing that that's the most powerful thing um, about today's exam. Speaking of fluctuation, um, what, what tolerance do you have? For fluctuating IOPs, what will you tolerate? Let's say I know it's a difficult question to answer because of depending on severity of disease. But are you happy with okay two or three millimeters of mercury, or do you start to get worried and start to intervene regardless at like four or five millimeters of mercury? So what are your what's your threshold for saying this is not controlled based upon fluctuation? You know, I, I was influenced by uh, Jeff Liebman, my uh, fellowship uh, mentor, and you know, he had a nice paper looking at something like, you know, 10,000 visual fields done in New York City, and he did pointwise linear regression on all these fields. So he ended up with, um, you know, something like 300 patients with five, more than five fields each, and, and could really drill down on risk factors. And, um, you know, he found that the, the Tmax, uh, you know, so the peak IOP was one of the best risk factors. Um, and fluctuation was in there, but it wasn't as important as the single highest pressure in the chart. So I, I kind of hung on to that in that study. Uh, he also found uh, low corneal hysteresis, not just to be a big risk factor, um, but also to be um, um, a bigger, uh, to be the only risk factor that mattered uh, if you consider both hysteresis and corneal thickness, so it kind of knocked corneal thickness out of the model. So I tend to latch on to the highest pressure um, uh, interestingly, when we get to hysteresis, you'll see a relationship between hysteresis and fluctuation uh, at times. But, but um, I, I tend to be the doc who doesn't let people have their gimme. Of, well, you know what, I didn't take my drops Thursday, and now I'm just here with a high pressure, but I know how to fix it. Uh, for me, that's actually, um, that's it. You know, you, you now need an intervention. Uh, because 
it's shown that that one pressure is when you progress and, and that's it now you've crossed the threshold. I think I'm more of a pushover. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I, I second everything Nate said, but the line I use is I, I, I say, Hey, I give you one, get out of jail free card. All right. You come in one time, your pressure. So <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then, and then after that, then I, I'll pull the trigger, but I give them one, I give them one, one chance basically. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask that question is because I, I, read, I read an article from, so, you know, we all know the advanced glaucoma interventional study, the age of study showing fluctuating IOP in a more advanced population, risk factor for progression over 100 months. But for me, what, what really kind of went, like a blue kind of like wow factor moment was when um, uh, when I read that Caprioli paper in 2008 that showed that if you sub, if you separate the two cohorts in the age of study, average pressure of 11, patients who had an average pressure of 24. And you look at the patients who fluctuated in the average pressure of 11, right, which is so hard to do in advanced patient population over 100 months. If you had an average pressure of 11, but fluctuated with less than three millimeters of mercury, you had a 9% progression rate. If you fluctuated with an average pressure of 11, but fluctuated more than three, you had a 30% progression rate, which incidentally was the same progression rate as if you had high pressure of 24 in that study. So I think to me, the more advanced we get, the more I think we start to see fluctuating IOP become a risk factor like Sigis and Aegis versus an OATS and those other earlier studies. We don't see it because you have so much more ganglion cells. It's hard to see field loss as, as a risk factor. But that's why I start to get more concerned when I see those kind of patients. But to earlier, the question, I do give I do give target ranges. I think uh, to your point, add a specific number, but I think it, it's a great way to give them some context. When the patient comes back, you start a therapy, they come back and like, doc, am I at that range? Yeah, you're at that middle teens. Congratulations. Keep on that drop. Or Mrs. Smith, when we said you had to be back in the teens, well, guess what? You're in the 20s. We got to do something more now. We got to start. So it gives me a springboard to talk about that next intervention. So I do think it's important. And I always tell them this is an evolving, it's an ever-changing target range, depending on how stable you are with your other tests that we do as well. So, um, but th thanks for that info, guys. I want to also ask a question. So, you know, we talk about the different risk factors, right? Age, and there's always obviously secondary issues like so exfoliation, et cetera. Let's just talk about the most common ones that we see. How important, I'm going to talk about two main ones that a lot of people are using. One is, of course, pachymetry, and one is another one that not everyone's using, which I think everyone should use, is coronal hysteresis. But real quick on pachymetry, how do you use that now as we've gotten so much more data in the last few years? And now that we have hysteresis, we'll talk about that in a second. Do you still use pachymetry? Do you still get it? And what does it mean in your algorithm? I use, um, I use pachymetry, um, but, but I really... Um... I focus more on, on corneal hysteresis now because I kind of think of, of uh, pachymetry as a poor man's hysteresis, really. I think hysteresis is a much more sophisticated and it's what central corneal thickness pointed to when we didn't understand the biomechanics of the eye. Um, but, you know, for example, when I'm classifying a patient's state risk, you know, if they're a glaucoma suspect, um, I will, uh, although I don't think it's broadly accepted that hysteresis is a risk factor, I think it's broadly accepted that corneal thickness is a risk factor. So uh, in their chart note, I will say a patient has low corneal thickness just because it's traditionally considered a risk factor based, for example, Oates calculator. Uh, but in my mind, I don't ever use uh, pachymetry often. I don't, not ever, but I rarely use pachymetry as a, uh, in a decision-making process, unless they're on the extreme of like 420 or something like that. But, um, but I will uh, always use corneal hysteresis in, uh, in my decision-making process. Cause I do think that it's a, it's a, it's a glaucoma vital sign. And Paul, like you said, it's something that I think everybody should be using given the, the data out there showing how closely it's tied, uh, the, the biomechanics of the eye, the corneal hysteresis, how closely it's tied to uh, risk uh, of getting glaucoma and getting worse with glaucoma. 
Okay, so I try to avoid the topic of history since long enough. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I tried, man. It took me like 15 minutes. But um, all right, so we have two amazing, amazing hysteresis specialists here. So I can geek out for a long time. Nate, just for the audience, give us a quick spiel. What is hysteresis? What is it really measuring for the average patient out there? So, you know, I think um, I'm not an engineer. And so I look at it as a real simple measurement first. And then I, I kind of try to figure the rest out from there. Hysteresis is if you're using an air jet tonometer, okay, which is a puff of air that ramps up from a very low pressure to a high pressure, eventually applinates or indents the cornea and then ramps the pressure back down. Um, the hysteresis is the difference between the pressure at which uh, the cornea indents and the pressure at which it goes back to normal. And, you know, if you have a nice fancy mattress, like Paul Singh, I'm sure does, you know, he can <laughs> sleep on the couch most nights nowadays. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you push your hand into that mattress, it's going to indent and you're going to take your hand away and it'll be a moment or two before that mattress goes back to its normal shape. And it's because the mattress has absorbed, it's viscoelastic, it's absorbed some of the energy from that push and it's just taking time to sort of return to its normal state. That uh, that's hysteresis and um, hysteresis tells us in my mind a little bit more about the cornea's behavior. And, and I use the term behavior because unlike corneal thickness which is a geometric property, um, the behavior of the cornea tells us how it acts. And it also implies that it is dynamic. It can be under conditions of stress and behave differently. Uh, and indeed things such as treatment, intraocular pressure, uh, age, all influence hysteresis as, as it changes over time. So it is uh, a biomechanical assessment of the cornea's viscoelastic properties. And as it turns out, uh, it tells us about the patient's likelihood of getting glaucoma, their likelihood of progressing if they have glaucoma, and even some other neat things about IOP, how the pressure responds to therapy and, and beyond. So we're going to get to that response to therapy because I know you've done some great work on that as well. Uh, Devinder, I mean, can you, can you honestly say then, uh, could you explain it by saying this is like the shock absorbing ability of the eye and the ability of the lamina to absorb kind of pressure forces? I mean, can you describe that some more? How do you correlate it with the nerve in the back of the eye? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, first, I think I understood about half of what Nate said, and I wish I understood history. <laughs> uh, but I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm I, I think of it as a, I mean, no, he has, that was just a, a perfect way of describing it. And, um, and, but yeah, the, the way my, I, I wrap my simple mind around it is really just thinking of the shock absorbing ability of the eye and, and eyes that are great shock absorbers, um, are less likely to get uh, glaucoma and get worse with glaucoma and eyes that are poor shock absorbers really feel the brunt of that of the of the insult from the pressure and aren't able to cushion that blow um and you know i think as as, as nate was saying that it, we measure it by looking at the front of the eye but it really kind of um i think gives us a sense of the entire eye as a spectrum and, and what's going on and the optic nerve um, and the lamina and um, and and you know thinking how that how the lamina and the optic nerve respond when the pressure is elevated. Um, so you know I try to just take a very uh, simplistic understanding because I think that the concept of hysteresis is is you know when when you know biomechanical experts hear me describe hysteresis I know they cringe because they understand it on a whole different level. Um, but the way I kind of understand it and the way I try to explain it to my patients is really just get to get simple. You 
you know, shock absorbing ability of the eye. We want to know if your eyes are good shock absorber or bad shock absorber. If it's a good shock absorber, you're less likely to get glaucoma and get worse. If it's a bad shock absorber, you're at a higher risk. And, uh, you know, the worldwide average, I kind of, is, you know, it's about 10. Above 10 is good, below 10 is bad. And that's kind of, I think, the, 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 the simpleton, simplistic way I can understand it and, uh, and appreciate it. Um, and I use that on a daily basis. And I think, um, I think um, it's, it's, easy, it's easy for me to explain that to a patient in clinic in a matter of five or 10 seconds, um, where I think they understand why the heck, um, you know, doing this puff test on their eye and, um, and doing this additional test on them. Yeah, I mean, the way I describe it to my patients, like a good shock absorber, it's a smooth ride. <laughs> if it's a bad shock absorber, you're feeling every bump and it really hurts. When your eye is hurting, when you have a bad shock absorber, it's low. So that's my simplistic way of looking at it for my patients. But, um, you know, so you mentioned that, you know, above 10, bad, below 10, good. So give, if you oh, can. No, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm sorry, above 10, above good, 10 good, below 10, below 10, 10 bad. I right. see it's a late night for me. Yeah. <laughs> so above 10, good, below 10, bad, sorry. So again, everybody, above 10, good, below 10, bad. So give us some scenarios uh, like real life scenarios. So where has it really impacted you? Because one of the questions I hear from a lot of my colleagues is, hey, you know, great, but what am I going to use it and how do I use it? So Nate, do you have any cases that you can describe for us where it helped you? Three hours ago, I saw a patient, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, it was a diabetic. And, um, you know, the patient was on three drops and had a pressure of 24. Uh, but there was a lot of diabetic edema and uh, the OCT was, you know, for lack of a better word, just not helpful in terms of telling us how much, you know, RNFL atrophy there was because the edema was swamping it. And, you know, you, you get in these situations where uh, it, it's really tempting to start chasing after the pressure because you've lost your radar. You know, when you don't have an OCT, um, you know, you're kind of like flying, you know, blind. And, um, you know, in this particular patient, we had, because every patient of this practice gets the uh, ocular response analyzer, I had the hysteresis, it was 11.5. Um, and, uh, you know, as you know, uh, Bob Weinreb did a study, uh, part of the digs or an extension of the dig study, where he looked to see um, really, uh, you know, how people's visual fields progressed, and he divided them into a low and high hysteresis group. There were no rapid progressors in the high hysteresis group. Uh, and in fact, the average slope in the high hysteresis group, even though some of them had glaucoma, the slopes were flat. They weren't even getting worse. Uh, so they certainly weren't getting worse quickly and they weren't really even getting worse over three or four years. So it's a get out of jail free card uh, on some level. And for this patient, the high hysteresis was enough to uh, not only help me decide not to escalate therapy, even though they're at uh, 24, but to uh, back off their drops and see if we can't keep them probably still with a pressure of 24 um, on just one of those two drops, because the, the other side of having a high hysteresis is drops don't typically lower your pressure that much because um, there probably isn't that much pressure to lower. You know, Nate, I think that's such a like an amazing example because, you know, there's always a tendency, especially as we talked about at the beginning of the session uh, with focusing on pressure. And, you know, when a patient hears the pressures, you know, 23, 24, they're chasing that low number. And, and as physicians, we also almost want to chase that number too. Um, but, you know, there's nothing I love more than stopping drops. And, and if you can have a patient with a high hysteresis, exactly what you described, you can watch a 24 and, and be comfortable because you know, and you can show them and explain to them that. Um, and uh, it's so powerful and it gives them comfort. It gives us comfort too. 
Yeah, so today, same example. I had a patient, patient uh, referral, pressure, um, pressure 25, patient's 36 years old, healthy nerves, healthy fields. Now, in, in my experience, if they have a history of 12 or 12 and a half, like this patient did, I'm okay to the head come back in a year, you're fine. If their history was like eight or nine, I'm like, I'm treating them. And that's how powerful it is for me as a decision-making process. If they're, if that same patient, low histories, I'm treating them. If they're high histories, I'm watching it for a year. And I think that's kind of how powerful to me it is. And, you know, Phil from Medeiros has done some great work at Duke showing patients who are, you know, glaucoma suspects progressing to glaucoma. I think you mentioned that earlier, Nate, being more powerful than, than pachymetry as well. So um, I think that's really important. And it also, and Davinder, you've done great uh, explanations on this IOPCC, this adjusted hysteresis uh, IOP versus the Goldmont equivalents. Can you tell us about what the machine, so we use the ocular response analyzer by Reichert, and um, that gives us those two values. Can you tell us more about those two values and how you use those in your practice? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the output of the ocular response analyzer is kind of uh, four things. One is the hysteresis. Two is the IOPG, which is what they think the Goldman application should be. Uh, three is this IOPCC, which is the corneal compensated IOP, or taking into consideration the biomechanics of the eye. And then the fourth output is the waveform um, score. And that needs to be at a decent level, about seven or eight or higher. Um, but what's interesting is that, um, you know, there's more of a discrepancy in my, in my experience, and I'd love to hear Nate's perspective on this too, that Goldman just misses it when the hysteresis is low. And, uh, and so, you know, I have patients that have a Goldman apination of, of 11 and a hysteresis of, of, of 8.5 and their IOPCC, they're getting worse at 11. And, you know, the, the traditional glaucoma doctor would say, oh, they need a, they need a trab and we need to get their pressure to 7.5, you know? Um, and, uh, but, but you do the, you do the hysteresis, uh, you do the ocular response analyzer, you assess their hysteresis, find that it's low and, uh, and you check their IOPCC and invariably the IOPC is like 17 or 18. So here you think you're following a patient with a pressure of 11 that's progressing. But in truth, what's happening is Goldman is missing it for some reason. And I think it has to do with the, bi the biomechanics of the eye. And one of the reasons why, although Goldman is important, why it's flawed. Um, and, and I think that's specifically uh, the most powerful thing. And that's probably why there's such a tight correlation between hysteresis and progression is because we're watching patients get worse, even though we think their pressures are reasonable. What you just said there, if you think about the Goldman tonometer, as also being a pachymeter and of it just blending <laughs> the intraocular pressure and the corneal thickness, but not telling you the relative contribution of the two, you see why it's such a problematic way to measure the pressures because one is good if it's high, you know, hysteresis, the other corneal thickness, the other is bad if it's high, intraocular pressure. And Goldman just gives you both mixed up a little bit. And, and, you know, it's, I, I joke that my favorite pachymeter is, you know, the rebound uh, tonometer <laughs> because you can tell if someone has a thick or thin cornea. And, you know, the problem is it's just telling you it's a pressure measurement. It's not admitting it's a corneal thickness uh, estimation. Anyway, you know, that, that's the problem, right? And, and that's what the problem we're trying to get. And, and to your point, when you finally get the relative contributions, the hysteresis here, the best assessment of the pressure there things start heading in the opposite direction. And you're totally right. Goldman is telling you it's a low pressure because there's a thin cornea. R wrong and not helpful for glaucoma because we need to be extra careful. Anyway. 
Yeah, no, those are those are great points. I want to I want to uh, tee off on a few of those uh, points you made as well in a second. But um, you know, there's a, there's a number of studies. I think there's about 700 studies I think been done uh, with using hysteresis and glaucoma over the last you know decade or so. And I think there's some really valuable. Like I think there's another study shows that 90% of our patients who have asymmetric glaucoma have a lower hysteresis and a worse eye. Uh, as well as this. I think one other study I think just important to recognize is to your point earlier, Devinder, about that whole lamina crebosa and the shock absorbing abilities that there was a study looking at a LASIK ring, putting on the cornea, bringing the pressure up to things 60 or 70 and looking at swept source OCT and showing that the higher the hysteresis, the more the lamina crebosa will go back and come back to primary position. And the lower that the lower the hysteresis, the less it would move as well, showing kind of the pliability of the lamina as well. So I think there's, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think when it's high, so you made great points about having low hysteresis and having the IOPCC being lower than what the, or higher than what the Goldman equivalent would be. Nate, what about higher, a higher C, um, hysteresis and effect on PGAs or IOP reduction in terms of topical drops? Do you find that that helps you explain why some people don't respond well? Yeah. So there's a, there's a tricky thing here um, with high hysteresis. By the way, Paul, one, I just have to tell you the story about Maybe 10 years ago, I tried to publish a paper that people with disc hemorrhages have lower hysteresis in the eye with the hemorrhage. Um, and that people have disc hemorrhages are lower hysteresis than people who don't have them. Not, nothing crazy, right? I couldn't get the paper published. I tried a couple revisions, waited five years, and then just resubmitted it, and it got in. No changes. <laughs> That's not working. <laughs> I just waited for, for everybody to understand hysteresis. Wait until the vendor starts talking more about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> On the podium. It's like, now it's, now it's getting accepted. <laughs> hey, you know, keep it in mind for some of your early manuscripts are probably ahead of their time. So, um, okay, so so let's take a, take a look at, so, so why is it when, when you, um, you know, when you measure with Goldman, you, you know, let's say you measure with Goldman and uh, someone has a very thick cornea, you get that high 26 and their cornea is 600. Uh, you put them on a drop and you may have changed the intraocular pressure, but you didn't change, you know, the, the elephant, right, the, in the room, which is the thick cornea. And so Goldman's going to report back, hey, I still had a tough time pushing against the cornea, pressure must still be high. Well, you change the pressure, but you didn't change the biomechanics, you didn't change the corneal thickness. And so Jamie Brandt in the Oats study showed uh, a really nice finding that when they started patients on uh, a PGA in Oats, that um, if they had a low thickness, a thin cornea, they were getting like 30% pressure reduction, maybe 25% pressure reduction from latanoprost. When they had the thick uh, corneas, it was something much less. And I forget his number, maybe it was 20% or 17%. Um, we repeated that with hysteresis and found an even more dramatic difference. Eyes with a very low hysteresis would get good pressure responses from drops, 30% from latanoprost. But the eyes with high hysteresis only had 7% pressure reduction. Now, do I believe that people, and remember, high hysteresis, low risk, those people do well. Um, do I believe that they're not having a pressure drop? No, I think their pressure's coming down inside the eye, but the cornea doesn't tell the story. We kind of played around with this a little bit, and we also found that people with a high hysteresis tend to have less pressure fluctuation. Now, why would that be? Um, you know, well, maybe it's because they have a low risk of glaucoma and they have stable pressures, but maybe it's because the cornea just sort of reports back the same kind of, you know, artificial value. And so I tend to think of eyes with a low hysteresis are giving you more pressure information. You can see things, you can see the pressure drop 
Uh, interestingly, when you do a TRAB on an eye with glaucoma, the low hysteresis eye will have a greater change in its axial length from the trabeculectomy. So it may be that those eyes with low hysteresis are just under more pressure stress. And when you treat that stress, things, um, things uh, just resolve more. Uh, we even had a paper at World Glaucoma Congress that we never published on about 50 surgical eyes. And again, a lower hysteresis going into the OR meant better pressure reduction uh, postoperatively. And this was with a variety of tubes, traps, and even CPCs. So, you know, there's something about the pressure response with low hysteresis. Maybe it's because the glaucoma is very severe. It even gets you thinking about whether intraocular pressure is really the best way to measure, you know, this disease that we think of as glaucoma, or if there isn't some, if it wouldn't somehow be better to just assess the stress biomechanically the eye has and kind of go after that. You know, Nate, what you got me thinking about with that, I mean, uh, what you said was just very insightful. Um, and, and, you know, when you, it circles back to what you initially said, uh, and when we're talking about target pressure and range, which is, you know, what you were taught was, and what you believe in is that fluctuation and pressure is one of the most uh, powerful predictors of progression. Now, you know, if we go back to my simple understanding of the eye and a shock absorbing eye, and I'm in a car that has horrible shock absorbers, I go over a bump, I'm going to fluctuate a lot. I'm going to, you know, we're going to go over that bump and I'm going to, I'm going to be shaking all over the place. Whereas if I have an eye that I'm in a car that has an amazing shock absorber, we're not going to be fluctuating at all. Um, so I think you just looped it right there around with, uh, with fluctuating pressure and a good shock absorbing eye um, is not going to have the same fluctuation and will likely not uh, have the kind of damage that you get with high fluctuations and a bad shock absorbing eye. That was some really cool stuff because, yeah, these are the issues that we face. You know, why are people not why are people not responding or why are people progressing despite a low IOP? And this is where history just gives us another understanding of the eye and what's really happening versus just IOP. But I want uh, before I know we we're already at like almost 30 minutes. So I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Um, those listening out there too. But I want to talk about some, some other options we have to check pressure because, you know, we understand that the cornea can uh, affect how our IOP is measured with Goldman. Do you guys use any other technologies in your practices to help measure the IOP outside of Goldman? I know Goldman has been the standard way of measuring IOP, but are there any new tonometers that you guys are using to help adjust for that stuff? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, Nate has been such a, a, you know, on the forefront, he's been about a decade ahead of everybody in, in terms of this stuff. And he's, he's really jumped, you know, and understood history since people, a lot of us did. And, uh, and the same thing is true for the, the, the new tonometer that's out called the cat's tonometer. And, um, and that is really, I've been playing with that a lot. And I've actually switched entirely to it um, in my main office because it's been shown to be, uh, it, it really takes into consideration the biomechanics of the eye and the cornea. And, and I think it doesn't have that same fault that Goldman has, especially in low hysteresis. Um, so, uh, you know, right now what I'm doing often is I'm doing the uh, the ocular response analyzer hysteresis measurement IOPCC, but I'm also doing a CATS tonometer, and and on occasion I'll pull out pull that out and put in the Goldman. Um, but invariably, what I'm seeing, especially in the low hysteresis patients, is Goldman is underreading it. CATS and IOPCC are usually dead on, um, and um, and I think that is the that's the future for Goldman. I, I really think it's um, the data out there and the studies that have done, been done are, are very powerful. It's so hard to do, you know, studies on on applanation because, you know, we don't. And I tell my patients this all the time: we don't know the true pressure. 
you know, the only way to know is by cannulating the eye and you cannulate the eye, you're going to alter the system anyway. Um, so it's really hard. And, and that's, I think, uh, kudos to Felipe Medeiros that do the progression studies on hysteresis. And it's so hard to do progression studies on applanation. Um, but I, I think we can use all that information that will help us further validate the, the CATS tenometer um, and really show that I think it is, it's less influenced by, um, by the cornea. So no, that's great stuff. Thanks, Devinder. Uh, so you know, Nate, tell us a little bit. What is the cat sonometer for those out there who don't know it yet? Is it, does it look like a gold bond? Is it slip onto a gold bond sleeve, or what? What? How does it work? So so cats, uh, and I just have to tell the story. But you know, Sean McCafferty is an ophthalmologist and an engineer, and uh, he's a smart guy. But I love it when innovations come from people just doing things that, in hindsight, are totally you're like, oh, I should have thought of that. And he basically said, you know what? No engineer has looked at Goldman tonometry in 70 years. Um, is, that, is the Goldman tip the best possible tip for measuring pressure? I mean, how could you have come up with that without modern computer modeling and all that? So he ran a bunch of regression analysis, engineering equations, you know, and uh, realized that a sinusoidal tip instead of that flat tip with the, you know, the three, roughly three millimeter um, diameter of the standard tip. He realized that he could do a little better. He could minimize tear film adhesions. He could um, minimize uh, the inf influence of astigmatism, corneal thickness, and hysteresis. And so all it is, is think of your whole gold mom machine. You keep that. That little tip that you take out and clean between patients is replaced with the cat's tip. So it's not very expensive in terms of anything like we usually pay for in our office. And it gives you a whole new, more accurate way to get Goldman-like readings. Um, and so you check pressure just like you would. The Myers on it look a little different and that takes a little bit of getting used to. It's maybe, you know, you gotta talk to your tech before they just go check a bunch of patients with it. But it's the same principle, same reading uh, philosophy. Interestingly, it forces you to be a little more centered and you realize you've been checking all these off-centered pressures with Goldman, but you know, not really kind of doing anything about it. And um, it gives you a value. And I would say within a day of using it, you immediately will start finding patients where you're thinking, wow, I'm so glad to see your pressures where I really thought it was, but uh, I was getting all these high Goldman readings or vice versa. So it was to, for me that the benefits of having the thing were realized within an hour of putting it in my uh, Goldman. So you do go back, you don't go back and forth doing Goldman and cats. You always check it with cats, right? Once you do cats, you follow up with the cats, I assume, right? You don't well, go back and forth. Um, you know, I would say, um, so again, um, no, you, you can, you can go back and forth and, you know, if I have a cataract post-op, um, and my technician's checking pressures, I'll just let the technician check, um, at least while I'm getting everyone used to cats, but whenever I'm checking a patient's pressure in the office, I'll use the cats and, um, you know, and usually it's good news. I mean, and that's one of the things too that, you know, sometimes been tough is, you know, we don't like to have bad news for patients and sometimes a low hysteresis isn't the best news. Um, but, um, you know, thick corneas, high hysteresis often add stress that doesn't need to be there. And so you can tell a lot of patients good news. You know, it's interesting. Um, I mean, um, 
with the CAT thermometer, it's um, it is also less influenced by how much fluorescence is in the eye, and uh, and it, it's it, you you know you you the Myers get distorted if you're not dead on exactly like Nate said, and so it forces you to be dead on, and um and 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 you can cheat a little bit with Goldman, and then the other thing that's annoying with, with Goldman obviously is you, know, you put a drop of fluorescence in the eye, and then you know you have to wait or you have to dilute it because the Myers are just so so thick, you don't get that with 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 cats, so. Um, yeah, so uh, you know, Sean has done such a great job with innovating that tip, and um, and just like with hysteresis, you know, you you, it, I, I joke that this is a safe space, but you know, you go to these some of these meetings and you talk badly about Goldman Appination, and you're going to get booed off the stage. Uh, so I don't I don't think uh, you know people are are ready to accept, uh, although you know most people I think will admit that Goldman is flawed, um, but I don't think they're ready to accept yet. Um, a new applinator tip, uh, although they should. And it's going to be just like Nate said about hysteresis. You know, 10 years ago, people, people looked at him like he was crazy. And now people look at him like he's a genius, uh, as he should be looked at. Um, uh, but, uh, but it takes a while to catch on. I, I have to thank both of you guys because so I don't even remember uh, Devinder that we had we had the glaucoma forum Congress meeting in uh, Chicago we, we invited you to speak at and you gave this awesome awesome hysteresis lecture I had I wasn't using hysteresis at the time and as soon as I got that I saw heard that lecture I like called the OR people I'm like man I need this now <laughs> like that was amazing and then I called Nate and Nate was like here's how you use it and it was just like oh my god and it really has changed my, my my way of approaching glaucoma and the more we the more we learn the more we realize as we all know the more we realize how much more we have to learn and just it's about opening up your horizons being open to new options and new new paradigm shifts as we're seeing with glaucomas it's always ever changing and I think hysteresis and castanometry are giving us a better understanding of what we really thought we knew and maybe challenging us a little bit there it's always hard to be challenged but I think we have to be open to that challenge so I have thought this was awesome you guys rocked it I learned so much from you guys so thank you for taking the time and thanks for all your knowledge and expertise and uh, hopefully we can get a chance to hang out soon but Thank you for the hysteresis and cats tsunami talk and just for overall friendship. Uh, anything you want to say to the audience before we go? No, this has been good. Thank you guys so much for uh, for doing this. So good to hang out with you and learn from from both of you. And uh, and uh, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, always always great to see you. And uh, you know, I feel uh, you know it's, it's a great opportunity to just hang out and chat with my friends. And uh, of course, unfortunately, I was born uh, with a demented mind that loves to talk about glaucoma. So tonight, check both those boxes. So uh, <laughs> thank you guys for a fun night. Uh, thank you, everybody, for hanging out with us tonight for another edition of Dose and Delivery. Again, thanks to Nate and Devinder. Awesome, awesome time. And stay tuned. Hopefully, we'll have another episode in the future. But in the meantime, stay healthy and uh, stay safe. And uh, we'll hopefully see you soon. Take care. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Dose and Delivery, the podcast. If you have feedback or topic suggestions to share, find us on Glaucoma Today's Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on Dose and Delivery, the podcast. Dose and Delivery.